And then as you're doing that, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles or your phone or however you access the scriptures this morning and find your way to Genesis chapter 3. This is really easy if you have a physical Bible. It's just a couple pages. It's like you don't even have to really go that far and you're there. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is what we're going to focus in on this morning. So the, the series that we're stepping into in this new year, something that's been stirring in me over the last few months, uh, and it's the, the concept is that it's, it's a series about sin, and the title is called Poisoned. Because whether you and I know it or not, we've all had the, the poison or the touch of sin in our life because we're human and because we're broken. And when you come to church, when we talk about sin, it's either like people are like, oh yeah, we need to talk more about sin, and usually they're thinking about people, other, someone else's sin, not their own. Or people say, man, they're really too harsh. They talk too much about sin. I wish I could hear more about grace and love and mercy. And all those things are true. But when we talk about sin, usually we talk about specific sins. And so we go through the list of this is right and this is wrong. And that's important. And there's a lot of passages and some of them we'll touch on through the series in the Bible that have to do with that. But what I want to do is kind of take a bigger picture. And what's really important is to ask the question, what is really going on when we engage sin? Sin being the things, if you, kind of a simple understanding, if, if God has laid out the way he desires what is best for our lives and the path and the journey, what that looks like, when we step off that path and do our own thing or go our own way, that's sin. It's missing the mark is what the Bible describes in the New Testament. It's, it's rebellion against what God wants to do in his purpose in our life and in the world. And when that touches our lives, sometimes it's easy to get really focused in on just one or two individual sins and not understand, why is this going on in my life? Why do I keep trying to get free from this, but I keep going around the mountain and I keep finding myself in the same place again? Why do I keep struggling with this? And I think some of the reason for that is that we will, and in this series we'll talk about it, that we'll spend so much time talking about the cross, which we do, Jesus' death and his resurrection, which paves for our sins and sets us free, but we don't spend a whole lot of talking about why do we sin? What's going on? Why do we keep doing this? Other than the fact that we can just blame it on our humanity, which we know that's true. But what's really going on? And so today, and we'll actually be in this for six weeks, but today and the next week are kind of part one and two of original sin. Going back to the beginning and understanding what happened originally happens over and over and over and over in our lives all the time. And so this morning, I, I want us to, to look at that. In fact, if you would, you could take a look at the screen because this is the simplest biblical definition for what sin is. In James chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When we have an understanding of what God desires and we choose another path or another thing to do, then we have fallen short of what God purposed, and therefore the Bible says that we've sinned. So in understanding that that's kind of the general concept of sin, pulling back a layer, why do we do that? If I know the right thing to do, why do I still do the wrong thing? Anybody ever ask that question? It's like it's obvious. It's black and it's white. Why do I not, why don't I not get this? It's one or the other. It's yes or no, but I choose the wrong thing. And what we're going to see in, in Genesis chapter 3 today is at the core of that, and this is kind of part one and part two, one of the biggest issues that we have, whether we know it or not, is that we live a life that attempts to be God. Instead of letting God be God, we try to be God. Now, you and I don't have necessarily a God complex where we're wanting people to bow down and worship us. Some of us may have that issue. That's a whole other message. But the reality is that you and I make decisions every day vying for God's position, trying to be Him. And we'll talk a little bit about why we do that. And I know that's true, not only because of what we're going to look at in Genesis 3, but in Exodus, 
when, when God gives the, the law and he gives the Ten Commandments to his people, the first commandment is what? No other gods before me. And I'm convinced it wasn't just no other deities that we might look to. I'm convinced that God was also saying no other gods, and that includes you. You can't be your own God, but boy, we sure try hard to do so. So with, with that understanding, let's look at, at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read the first seven verses and then we'll actually make our way through the rest of the, the chapter this morning. But in Genesis 3, verses uh, 1 through 7, this is a, probably a, a well-known story. We jump in, we're talking about a dialogue that happens between Eve and the serpent and really comes to this point of making a decision to do it your way or God's way. So starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat it, it, of it, it will open your eyes, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to, be, uh, to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we know this, we refer to this as the fall. This is when sin enters the story, enters the equation, and then everything kind of spirals downward after this. But if you and I look at the story, what's going on, there's something that happens in this story that is repeated over and over and over in our lives all the time that we just don't identify. And the, the tension with Adam and Eve is that whether they knew it or not, they were vying to be God. And when we're in the same context that they are and we're experiencing this, there's, there's three things in this passage that sin, sin will promise to you and I that it was promised to Adam and Eve and they ne it never delivered. But there's three things that, three lies, three promises that you and I believe if we engage in what and Adam and Eve engaged in that we will end up accessing these things in our lives. And it's three lies that we buy into. And these are the promises that sin makes to us that we have to be aware of in our endeavor to try to be God. The first one is this, sin promises control. So in, the, in verse 4 it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. What was he saying to Eve? What he was saying is the greatest barrier, the greatest challenge, the biggest mountain that humanity faces is death. And that is introduced as the limiting factor that God says, Listen, if you eat of this, you're going to die. And the enemy says, no, 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 no. God is wanting you to think that he's in control, but you can be in control. You won't die if you eat this. Control is a huge issue for us. We love to be in control. Not necessarily, now there's some of us that are control freaks, and we like to control everything that everybody does all the time. Anybody know like that, someone like that? Don't raise your hand if they're sitting next to you right now. But we all know people like that. But what we like about control especially when it comes to our life, is that we like to lay out the, the journey and the path of our life in such a way that we think it's going to bring happiness to us. And if we could control the ultimate barrier for humanity, and that's death, then who do we become? We become God. And we love that. We love inside of us. We want to control everything. We want to know all the things that are going to happen and make sure that it happens according to our plan and our will. So we want to be in control. We want everything to work out the way we want it to work out for our lives. 
This taps into something deep inside of our humanity, a part of who we are. It's part of our nature. We want to be in control. We want to be the hero of our own life. And I know that's true. If you, I did a, a, just an internet search just to see, you know, kind of like by popularity. You know the top three, let me list the top three movie series of all time in terms of their bo- box office take, how much money they've made. Number one overall is Marvel series on superheroes. All of those movie series, so the Avengers and all those that go with that, that kind of thing. You take all those movies, they've made more money worldwide than any other movie series. Why is that? Because there's a superhero involved that taps into some of our humanity that may not be perfect, but at the end, they always win. They always control things. They always overcome something. Second, you know the second most highest grossing series of all time? Harry Potter. People like gasp for a service. Oh my gosh, Pastor John mentioned Harry Potter. (laughs) Harry Potter taps into something inside of all of us. Control. By whatever means. Do you know what the third one is? Star Wars. Someone was saying, Star Wars. Ooh, we got fans over here. Why? Because, right, the rebels always find a way to overcome the empire, right? And we tap into that. Why? Because we love the hero story, but we put ourselves, don't tell me you haven't done this. You haven't been in the series. You haven't been, you sit in there and you are the character. That's why we like it. Because somehow they control their own destiny and make everything great for themselves. And we love that. What is that? It's control. And that's what we're vying for. And we make that our life's focus only to discover that it's a lie. Because the more we try to control, the more we find out we're absolutely out of control. Second thing, look at verse 5. Sin also promises independence. It says, the serpent says this in verse 5. For God knows. He's saying something to Adam. It's just implicit in that. He's saying, listen, God's holding out on you. God is holding out on you, and he doesn't want you to know this. He doesn't want you to eat of that fruit, because then you're going to know what he knows. And now, in this context, if you don't eat, then you're still dependent on him. But if you eat, then you're no longer dependent on him. So you're independent, and you no longer need him. That's what's going on in this dialogue. He says, hey, God knows, and God's holding back from you. He's withholding information so that he can still control you, so you are dependent on him. But if you eat of the fruit, you'll no longer need him. And we are tempted with that all the time. I want to be what? Independent from needing anybody or anything in my life. I want to be completely self-sufficient. I don't want to be disappointed by anybody that I need anything from them because they're only going to let me down, including God. So if I could be just independent, then I don't need anything. That's why we love the lottery. Let's just be honest for a moment. Have you ever sat for a moment or for two hours or for a day and thought, what would I do if I won the lottery? Anybody ever answer that question? We all have. And we start thinking of all the things that we would do, how our life would dramatically change if we just won the lottery, how we would pay off all of our debt, how we could buy a bigger house, how we could help our relatives, that we could help our family, we could give to the church, all these noble causes. And at the end, what we're really saying is, I won't need anything because I'll have everything. I won't need to be dependent on anybody else. I've, Kim and I have actually sat, well, man, what would happen if we won the lottery? We'd pay off the church building. We'd pay off our own debt, right? You'd go through all those things, and I, th- I wouldn't take a salary at the church. Why? Because I'd be independent. <laughs> so freeing. It's so tempting. But that's the promise that sin gives to us, that we can be free from needing God for anything. It's tempting. Second, or the third thing that sin promises 
is that it promises knowledge. It goes on in verse 5. It says that when you eat, the serpent saying this of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be able to understand and know what only God seems to know. You will be like God. That's the promise that's being given to Adam and Eve in this context, that you can be as smart as God. Can you imagine if you were as knowledgeable and as smart as God, you were all-knowing? You wouldn't need him, would you? No, you wouldn't need him. But there's a battle that goes on in, in all of us all the time, and that is we somehow, even though we don't say this, we live this reality. I know better than God. We do. We tell God what our life is supposed to look like. We fill in the blanks of the script of our life, and we tell God, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what will make me happy. This will make me fulfilled. And God says, no, I have a plan that's better than that. And you're like, no, 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 you don't. I know what's best. And that's the tension that we live in all the time, that we're telling God, and you can, it's revealed so many times in what we pray for. We're saying, God, this is my will. Would you get on my bandwagon, please, because I know better than you. We don't say it that way, but that's exactly what we're saying. We want this idea that I know more than God. I know my life better. I know how to run my life better. I know what to do, and in reality, it's a lie that we've bought into. Look at what our world looks like. Our world looks like humanity trying to be its own God and saying it knows better than the creator himself. And where are we now? You know, it's, it's a mixed bag, but the movie Bruce Almighty that came out a number of years ago, there's a lot of truth in that movie because the point when, when Jim Carrey actually gets to be God and how he destroys the world because he finally knows what God knows and he still can't change anything. There's a problem with that. So we, we struggle with the promises that, that sin gives us but never delivers on, that we could actually be in control, that we could be independent of everything and anyone and ultimately, we could know what God knows. Those are all tempting things. It wasn't just taking a bite out of a piece of fruit. It was a promise of something that they could never attain. But you and I are just like them. I've had people say, well, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have made that decision. Oh, yes, you would. It's part of the human condition. God gave the human beings the capacity to make choices. And in making choices, we will end up making the wrong choice. So if we buy into that, that reality of becoming God, becoming our own God, then what happens is that sin produces things in our life that we didn't realize were a part of the package deal. We don't want those to be a part of it, but that's what comes. So when we attempt to be our own God, sin produces these things. In fact, this is the remainder of the chapter that's laid out for us in Genesis 3. The first thing that sin produces, our attempt to be our own God, is it produces shame. Verses 7 through 10, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord walking, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had no idea that they were naked. They had no idea. There was pure innocence. But then the moment that sin enters the equation, what happens is there's this realization, there's something not right with me, and I can't figure out how to fix it. So instead of trying to figure out how to fix it, I just cover it. If I can just cover it, I can manage myself. And can you imagine 
Adam and Eve thinking a few fig leaves and a loincloth is going to like somehow fool God that he doesn't know what's going on. They're, they're trying to hide themselves. Why? Because there's something wrong in them and they don't know what to do. They can't fix it. So they're just going to cover it and hide it, which pulls them away from God and puts them at a distance. In some of our lives, we are motivated by that reality of shame that we constantly keep at a distance from other people and a distance from God. Why? Because we think that we can somehow cover what's going on inside of us. We think that we can fool people and not be able to deal with the issue that's inside of us, but something inside of us is broken and we can't fix it. It's this thing called sin. And it may look good on the outside, and some of us are really good at looking like good people on the outside, wonderful people. We have our lives together, and deep down inside, we're so broken and we're dying. You ever, Kim and I and our kids, we've lived in a number of different houses and different apartments. And, you know, when you sort of first start adjusting to a place that you're living, you always can figure out the people that lived you there before if they had any clue on how to fix things properly. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, a house can look really good on the outside and, and it can look good if paint covers, you know, a multitude of sins. Like when we bought our house in, up in Oregon, it was raining like it always does, and so you try to get a good idea in the rain of what things look like, and the deck in the backyard looked really nice because it, it was freshly painted, and then, you know, when we bought the house, and we did some inspection things, but then you started to realize when we got to the spring, it started to dry up a little, the paint started peeling, and as it started peeling, you started realizing all the wood was rotted, and then as you started walking around the deck, you started, you know, putting your foot through the deck and realized paint covered all this, and it looked great. The other night, I was putting some towels away in our kitchen in the house that we, we just bought recently, and so I pulled the drawer out, and I was putting towels in, and I was trying to get more towels in that probably should go in there, and so I just pushed a little, and the entire bottom of the drawer just fell out, and everything just fell apart. So I pulled the remainder of the drawer out of, of the cabinet, only to find that the back of the drawer had been held on, with, held on to the rest of the drawer with two pieces of blue painter's tape. That was it. So it was like in self-destruct mode. The moment you pushed it, it just destroyed itself. And I'm like, ah, somebody thought that would be good enough. I'll just throw some tape on it and shove the drawer in and no one will ever know that it's there until it falls apart. How many times in our life do we live with this shame kind of cloaking our lives thinking, I can hide? Because that's what sin produces in our life because we know, see what's happened when we strive to be our own God, we finally realize there's something wrong with me and I don't have the answer to it. But I don't want to go to God because I'm fleeing from him because he knows that I have problems, which, by the way, it's, it's, that's the crazy thing is we think we can hide from God, and we can't. He already knows what's going on in our lives. And then there's a second thing sin produces. Sin produces denial, and that is that we play the blame game. Look at verses 11 through 13. He says, he said, who told you? This is God talking to uh, Abraham, or excuse me, Adam and Eve. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to me said, or she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In one sentence, Adam blames Eve and God, and then Eve blames the serpent. Just side note, I mentioned this first service. Adam was just equally as complicit as Eve was, by the way because he was standing right there. If not more, he stood idly, passively by as his wife or his love engaged in a conversation that he should have been engaged in and he didn't. So guys, don't ever look at a woman and say, you're more deceived. Because if you say that, then you're more deceived. <laughs> Equally deceived. 
But what's going on here is that the moment that they are exposed and they are caught in this, because they know this is, this is what happens in us. We know, again, there's something not right in us, and I can't put enough shame over it to cover it, so I'm just going to find a way to blame somebody else for my brokenness. I'm going to point the finger at somebody else. This can't be my fault, because if it's my fault, then that means there's something wrong with me. So there's got to be something wrong with somebody else, not me. So we point the finger at somebody else. That's the culture that we live in. We struggle with accepting responsibility for our lives. We do, and that's why in our culture, we love to use the court system to somehow detract or, or deflect the blame that should be placed on us. You ever opened a product and read a warning label? Not always, but many times the warning label is placed on that product because somebody did something they weren't supposed to do with that product, and then when they injure themselves, they sued the company, and the company had to pay out a lot of money, so thus the warning label. No joke, warning labor on a chainsaw, a sticker on a chainsaw that says, make sure to grab the correct end of the chainsaw with a little picture with somebody trying to grab a moving chain. That means somebody tried to grab it and then said, hey, someone should have told me that these chains were sharp. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but what is it? It's this, I don't want to be blamed. Anybody have car shades that you put up on the front of your car to kind of keep the heat out? Look real closely on the majority of those. There's a little tag that says, don't put up the shade while operating vehicle. <laughs> Why? Because somebody must have tried to. The sun was too bright, and they thought, well, if I leave the shade up all the time, then the sun won't bother me. Neither will the traffic or the red lights that you run through. Somebody had to have tried that. You know that somebody had to have tried that. Or I couldn't believe it. You know on the Duraflame logs, there's actually a little thing on the outside that says, risk of fire. Someone had to be told that a Duraflame log might actually catch fire, and it might be hot. Or the famous, you know, McDonald's uh, lawsuit where the lady put the hot coffee between her legs and burned herself. Now, there's a lot that was going on beyond that. There's a bigger case than just that one, but, but really, think about it. Coffee, and this, that happened before there was, like, iced coffee. So the default was coffee will be hot, so you should know not to put it there. You should put it somewhere safe. And no joke, there's actually warning labels on some microwaves now today that says, do not use to dry pets. <laughs> because obviously someone thought, that's quicker than a blow dryer. Yeah, that's the last time that they ever dried their pet that way. Why do we have that in our culture? So you're, people are just thinking about the images right now. Wow, that must have been a mess to clean up, right? But why do we have that in our culture? Because we struggle with taking responsibility. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did. It's the same thing that we do today. When we know there's something wrong in us, we have to find another way to point to somebody else to get it off of us. And then there's the third thing that sin produces. When we try to be our own God, it produces pain. So verses 16 through 19, listen as it goes on. It says, to the woman, he said, this is God talking to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but you sh he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. But the sweat by the sweat of your brow or your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. You have to capture what's going on here. So he starts with Eve. 
If you go back a couple chapters in Genesis, the first couple chapters, the first blessing and the first command that God gives to mankind is be fruitful and multiply. That was supposed to be a blessing that comes to humanity, that God gives humanity the capacity to create. That's crazy. The very thing that was supposed to be a gift and a blessing, now God says to Eve, this will cause you great pain. This is what's crazy when it comes to sin. The very things that God wants to bless us with as a gift in, in our lives are the very things that we strive for, and instead of being a blessing or a gift, they become painful to us. And then what does he say to Adam? Adam was given the garden. He was supposed to subdue the garden. He was supposed to live in this. He was supposed to tend the garden. And things would have worked wonderfully because what we can tell from research is that before the fall, the earth had a perfect climate, perfect for growth. It wasn't that it had to have cold and hot and storms to make things. There was always natural moisture. There was this capacity for this perfection. So the, can you imagine having a garden where there's never any snails or weeds? Everything grows and grows rapidly. That's what Adam had. And so it was something that would be a blessing to him, and it would produce fruit that they could eat. And that's what God gave him. And now he says to him, now you've lost that. The very thing I blessed you with is now the very thing that will be a curse in your life. And you will have to work hard to provide for yourself all the days of your life. Why? Because sin did not deliver on what it promised. And now Adam and Eve have to deal with that. It's the very thing that you and I struggle with with God, is that we want to be God, so we want to take control, and we want to do it our way. It's the same thing that's laid out for us in Luke chapter 15, where the prodigal son, if you know the story, he goes to his dad, and he, his dad was going to give him his an inheritance anyway, and he'd always lived in his dad's household and had everything that he needed and was always provided for, and yet he comes to his dad and says, I want my inheritance now. And so his father gives it to him, and then he leaves, and as you know, the story goes, he blows all of it. And then the very thing that he was supposed to have that would be a blessing to him is the very thing he loses. And now what is he doing? He, even, he used to have food provided for him at home, and now he's fighting with pigs to get a meal. The very thing that was supposed to be a blessing became a curse to him because he tried to be his own God. He tried to control his own destiny. And this is what breaks the heart of God. Because God desires not to be God because he's on some power trip, but to be God because he knows what is best for our lives. Listen to the heart of Jesus when he said this of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verses 37, 38. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would, were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is longing for these people to be his people so he can love them and care for them and bring them in. And they, they said, no, we don't want to have anything to do with you. And so what does he say? Now your city's left desolate. You've lost the blessing that I wanted to give to you. And then there's a final thing, a final thing of what sin produces, and that is that sin produces separation. Look at verses 22, uh, 23 and 24. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden, uh, at the east of, the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve were created in this perfect context to live, and this is what we missed. It wasn't just that the garden was beautiful and that everything was just perfect. It's that the garden was the place that they dwelt with God. They were in face-to-face -face relationship. None of us know what Adam and Eve ex experienced. 
we will know through Jesus in eternity when we're resurrected, we will have that face-to-face -face restoration of that relationship face-to-face -face with God. But they lived, I mean, that God would come walking in the garden in the cool of the day to spend time with them. And because they were perfect at the time, there was no sin, they could relate to him as though we would relate to a friend. And that's the context. But because they decided to say, you know what? I think I can do a better job at being God. I'm going to choose this path. They chose the path that led them right out of the garden, out of the context with face-to-face -face relationship with God. Separation. And so what ends up happening is, is that they end up thinking they're getting everything they want, but they're losing the very thing that they need. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? That we gain everything that I think I'm supposed to have. I'm going to play God in this, this narrative because I know what's best. I'm going to get it all. And in the process, we're going to lose the very thing that we need the most. And that is Jesus. We need God. We are dependent. We are the creation. He is the creator. And we get that backwards. So it leads to this separation. And when separation happens in our lives, then what happens is that we don't understand that our lives cannot be what they're supposed to be apart from God. They can be life. God created us. They can be a life. They can be even a good life. But they can't be the life that God created us to live that is fulfilling to the core of who we are. And I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask you if, if you would. I want you to close your eyes. And that's just as a point of focus. Because uh, just with your eyes closed, to, to, to just kind of hone in on what I want the Lord, or I believe the Lord is saying that as, you, as we leave today, that, that you're going to take away. Going through Genesis chapter 3 can be heavy and, and can be overwhelming. And, and, but I know that one of the things that is a huge relief that comes to us as human beings is that when we come through this passage, and we'll, we'll look more at what it means for us behind the scenes with sin next week. But in our striving to be our own God, Jesus comes along as God and demonstrates what God looks like, acts like, thinks like, who he is. And then says to us, knowing that we're broken, knowing that we're cloaked in shame, knowing that we're trying to deflect or hide the brokenness inside of us, he says to us, you no longer have to be your own God. I need you to hear that this morning because I am convinced that there are some here today that although it sounds almost silly, you have been so strained and so weighed down and so pained as you've tried to work out your life in being your own God and holding on to control and being independent from God and everything else and trying to know everything that you can't possibly know and you feel crushed and you feel weighed down and you feel overwhelmed and God is saying to you today, you don't have to be God. And then he says, let me be God and you be my child. Let me be the one who ultimately is in control so that you don't have to be. Let me be the one that doesn't need anything so you can be the one that's dependent on me. Let me be the one that knows all things so that as you choose to follow me, I work out your life according to what's best. 
would you hear those words that God wants to speak today? It is a great relief to know that you don't have to be God. You can be human, and you can let God be God. And the reason you can do that is because Jesus did not only demonstrate who God is, but in his humanity and in his divinity, in the fullness of who he is, he gave his life by dying on the cross that took away the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death, the thing we can't control. Now Jesus has control over because of his death on the cross that pays for our sin and sets us free. And if you and I will walk in that, the cross says to you and I, I don't have to be God any longer. So would you lay that down? Would you surrender that, that, that identity of trying to be your own God? And in that, you will begin to see clearly all the lies that you've been told about what sin, what you being your own God would produce in your life and only to lead to disappointment. You don't have to do that anymore. Now you can actually trust God who's trustworthy. So Jesus, as we, as we come to conclusion today and we head out into our routine of life, I pray that, that you would interrupt us this week where we make decisions, have thoughts, do things that are, are vying to take that position that only belongs to you that we're trying to be God in our own lives, that you would gently come and you remind us and whisper into our hearts and our spirits, we don't have to be that. And that, Lord, as we listen to that, there would be great relief as we realize, as we become dependent on you, then we just realize what life is all about. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your insight. Now, Lord, help us to live as human beings and honor you as God in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.